So, Mark. Yes. One of the things that we definitely know about Michael, Dermot Mulroney's character in this week's movie, is that he is a writer for Sport Magazine. I would argue one of the few things we know, but go on. He is a character so thinly sketched, his employer is Sport Magazine. My point is... I was wondering, do you know of any particular uh, weird or unusual magazines that you've read in your life? Because I assume that sport magazine is, like, not just your everyday sports I mean, as a loyal subscriber who's been reading sport magazine for over a decade, I find it hard to believe that you are making fun of such a great vaulted institution. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, like, the 90s are the heyday of, like, Sports Illustrated. It's the rise of ESPN, which has its own magazine. It just seems strange that they would not either use a real magazine or make up a better sounding name. It's insane. But as a young Cub Scout and Boy Scout of one day, I do remember reading Boy's Life magazine. Oh, good. And I remember nothing about it except for one edition. I don't know what it's called for issue issue one issue had a whole article about why porn is bad and I was in like second grade when I got this magazine and I don't even think I knew what porn was when I read it they definitely subscribed you to the wrong edition because there is a Cub Scouts edition and a Boy Scouts edition maybe I got that when I was older I easily could have just continued receiving boys life after I quit being a Boy Scout because that sounds very much like something boys life would do is make it impossible to unsubscribe. Uh, you know, I don't I don't really know. I stopped getting them at some point, but I don't know when that was. I think everyone can say they stopped getting it at some point. Actually, is it still published? Yeah, I think. Or did it go virtual, like Blue's Clues? I'm sorry, what now? Blue's Clues. Did you not hear? There's no more handy-dandy notebook. It's a smartphone. And he gets emails instead of letters. So again, I did not have cable growing up. So I am a little hazy on the structure of Blue's Clues to begin with. So what you're saying is like he now gets clues via a smartphone. Well, no. He writes the clues down in his smartphone. Because he used to write them down in his handy dandy notebook. Oh, it seems like he could still use a notebook. Yeah, but you gotta relate to the youth, Will. I I don't know, Mark. I watched Scoob the other day, and people working too hard to relate to the youth is a real problem. Yeah, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Maybe this weekend, but I just can't. Here's the thing. It ain't long. It's not. I heard a summary of it, and it sounded like a movie that had to take place over two hours plus. They pack a lot in there. It's like 100 minutes. Maybe I'll suffer through it. But anyway, Fiona. Yeah, I... The only magazine I used to get as a kid was the American Girl magazine, which I don't remember anything stupid in it. I remember it being pretty fun. What was in the American Girl magazine as distinct from the American Girl catalog? Well, the catalog is where you buy things like dolls and clothing. And the magazine was like there were articles or like fun things to do over the summer and like punch out crafts you could do. And then there was an advice column. People could write in asking for help. And I, I feel like... They would, like, pick different topics, too, and people could write in, and some of them were really dramatic, and it was really fun to read them. Is the advice column under the assumption that a sentient doll is writing the advice? No, no, no. Because that's is like, all I can picture. There, There's nothing related to the dolls in the magazine. American Girl is, like, a much larger brand than just the historical dolls. Right, and I would say that this was for more of, like, a middle school audience than an elementary school audience. See, when I think about, like, magazines that I read a lot, 
as a kid, I think about the Lego magazine, which was similarly tied to a corporation trying to sell you stuff. And that one was really in its heyday in the late 90s. Because at that point, like today, Lego is almost entirely licensed stuff, whether it's like Star Wars or Harry Potter or like Jurassic Park Legos or whatever. But back then, Lego was building its own concepts kind of loosely based on intellectual property. So like there was a character called Johnny Thunder, who was clearly a knockoff of Indiana Jones. But then they had to build up all this lore around the characters. Like, this is his arch enemy, and these are his friends, and these are all of their relationships and their past. And so the magazine was just chock full of the lore to make these Lego toys make sense. You know what else was in American Girl? I'm pretty sure they had, like, they published short stories by the readers. I mean, we all know the best children's magazine is Highlights. I only ever... Oh, you know what? I did get that sometimes. You subscribe to Highlights. Yeah, there was a Hidden Pictures, and then Goofus and Gallant taught us how to be good people, because you didn't want to be Goofus. Or they taught us how to be bad people if you saw Goofus as more of a model. That is true. His name is Goofus, though, so I have a feeling you're not supposed to want to be him. I don't know. Goofy is one of the very fun Mickey Mouse characters. Apparently, Goofus and Gallant were originally elves. What? And then they were changed to human boys in the 1950s. I feel like those names are more elfin than boy. Yes, but that information combined with the murderous elves in Eurovision Song Contest is pretty fascinating. I don't know if you realize that there's, I think, like 47% of Iceland in a survey said that they kind of believe in elves. Oh, I'm aware. Like, that was not something that was made up for that movie. No, I know that, like, little elves are active in Iceland. My cousin did not realize that Eurovision was a real thing when she watched it, either. So that's weird. Yeah, I was like, you know it's based off of a real contest. She's like, what? Yeah, that ABBA video at the beginning. That was them at Eurovision. (laughs) Anyway, good movie. Really bad, but I liked it. (laughs) No, it's a fun movie. You okay, Fiona? Yeah, my mouth hurts. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bummer. It is unfortunate. I burnt my tongue. What were you eating? I don't remember. This is great podcasting, guys. Quiche, quiche. I was making quiche or eating quiche. Mark, we're not leaving the house. This is all we have to talk about. (laughs) Been in here for four months. I'm trapped. All that's left is burnt tongues. This is the news. (laughs) (laughs) We used to like tell stories about going places. I'm trying to think of anything i've done i started trying running we'll see how long this lasts wow how far have you gone that's that's my news uh two and a half miles but a lot of walking because it's It's a training program yeah anyway welcome to we love the love a hollywood romance podcast i'm mark and i'm gay and i'm will and i'm a ginger this is a podcast dedicated to exploring one of the most important unimportant questions of our day namely does hollywood romance actually make any sense And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. Either way, we'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are joined by hashtag Fifi Fierce herself, my sister Fiona, to look at one of the biggest hits of the romantic comedy's 90s heyday, My Best Friend's Wedding, directed by PJ Hogan and starring Julia Roberts. So Fiona, I have to ask, this movie is predicated on a marriage pact where if two people were unmarried by... 28, they would be so old and uneligible that they'd have to marry each other. How did you feel about this? I hated every second of that. (laughs) Oh, you didn't care for that? (laughs) No! 28? Are you kidding me? 
I got to that point in the movie when Rachel said, Fiona should do this episode, and I paused it and called you up. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my gosh. What? That is the most absurd thing I have ever heard of. Like, to be fair, this movie is not from now, but still. 28? I will tell you right now, as a 28-year-old, I don't even feel like a real adult. Well, that's because you're still burning your mouth every time you make a quiche. (laughs) What year did this come out? 1998? 97. I'm Googling average marriage age. It is worth noting that the Mexican remake of this movie, which came out in 2019, aged the marriage pact up to 35. So have either of you ever made a marriage pact? I think I have, but it was for like 45 and with the understanding that we would then also still date other people. Ooh, an open. I was in the closet till I was like 18, so I have forgotten any marriage pact and I think they all became (laughs) null and void at a certain point. So the median age of marriage in 1997 was for men 26.8 and for women 25, which means that's the median. So over half of people got married older than 25. That's true. But there is like a critical mass by that point. Which I don't like. But you guys, I made a marriage pact. And this one went that if one of us hit 50 without being married, the other one would pay us $100 as like a pity money. And that was my marriage pact. No marriage involved. That's not really a marriage pact. I get money. That's like a marriage bet. You're betting that the other person will be married by 50. Yeah, I guess so. Wait, okay. Unrelated, but I'm looking at the census data to figure this out. For some reason in 2007, this easily could be a typo because it's collated, not the website. The median age of first marriage for men dropped to 17.5 from 27.5 the year before, which is what leads me to believe it's a typo, but still. It was higher in 1890 than in 1997. Interesting. Insane. I wonder why that is. Well, I was just listening to a very unrelated podcast, but they were saying that in like the 1700s, the age of consent was 10. Yes. Well, yes, that is that sounds about right. I did not and know that. that. Would, I mean, there are a couple of factors on that where like one of them would be with lower life expectancy, people get married, particularly women get forced into marriage at a much younger age and are expected to start pumping out children. And then with, like, medical technology at the time, they're more likely to die in childbirth. The other thing is, like, I can't speak to, like, hard laws with hard ages, and it would probably vary pretty widely. But for a lot of history, the age of consent is, like, women who have had their period. Yeah, that's basically the general law is, like, as soon as you have your first period, you are shipped off to your husband. How exciting. Well, at least this is all for the, like... So then class. by the time you're 28, like... <laughs> it is true. That's you're quite old. That's Dried true. up, withered old crone by that point. Now, Mark, you and I had not seen this movie before. No. I'd barely heard of it. This feels like a big cultural touchstone that somehow I just missed. Yeah, Mark was texting me about it the other day, and he was like, yeah, it seems like this movie might have been kind of influential. I was like, yes, Mark, it was the eighth biggest movie of the year. I just, like... Maybe seen a tweet about it, but no, nothing. But Fiona, you had seen this before. Only once. Okay, because you sounded really excited when I called you. Oh, it's, I mean, because I think it's a fun movie. But yeah, I've only seen it twice now. Okay, so do you have anything like, what? what is your sort of take on My Best Friend's Wedding? 
What are your core sentiments on it? I think it's kind of a fun caper movie. It is one of those movies. Okay, like sometimes when you watch a movie and you look at the characters and you're just like, all of these people are terrible. That's kind of how I feel about this. But that doesn't make it not fun to watch. But all of these people aren't terrible. There's one terrible person and it's our protagonist. That's true. This movie I found to go through phases where I was really into it and then stretches that were just insanely boring. So my thing with this movie is I think the jokes work. Yes. Like I think it is really effectively funny, but it is a banner example of an issue that is in a bunch of 90s rom-coms like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, where aggressively creepy behavior is just what is allowed to go on. Now, this movie does punish Julianne for her creepy behavior, but there's just so much of it that's like kind of reprehensible. I think that it's just like so, she takes it so far, it cannot even be realistic. I don't think I know anybody who has gone this far to get their way. Right, it's just that it goes so far. And it's, I think one of the interesting things about the movie is it's not, always 100% clear to me at least how much we are supposed to be rooting for her and if we are that's not something that I can stomach now by the end of the movie we have George on the phone saying like okay who's chasing you nobody you should stop doing this and I think that's meaningful yeah but it's the problem of presenting this behavior with her kind of being framed as our hero that forces me to be more distant from the movie than I would like because like I said I think the jokes work it's a movie that almost is trying to point out how reprehensible the behavior in these other movies is, but isn't doing it in a way where you're actually, like, judging it. Because in the end, she doesn't get the man. Which was a shift, and I said we would talk about this at the end, but we should maybe talk about it now since it's coming up. In the original ending of this movie, she still did not end up with Dermot Mulroney, but at the wedding reception, a bunch of guys walked past, and one of them, John Corbett, Wait, okay. swings back. That was John Corbett? Yeah. I kept thinking it sounds like him, but it was so blurry, I couldn't really see his face. John Corbett is like, hey, you want to dance? And George on the phone is like, yes, go do it. And the test audience is like violently rebelled against Julia Roberts being rewarded with a man at the end of the movie. So they had to change it. Okay, but not only that, that part was bad. It then goes into literally a bunch of dancing, entertaining black servants, essentially. It's like four minutes of a kitchen gospel choir that serves no other role in the movie. It went on for far too long. And there were no other people of color in the movie. Right. So it's just like the only people that show up of color are entertaining servants. It was all of the worst tropes at once for so long. (laughs) We're posting this video on our social media this week. Like Fiona said, it's a little bit blurry, but the original ending of this movie is just gobsmackingly bad on like Sweet Home Alabama levels. I think if that's how it had ended, I would never, ever, ever watch the movie again. Right, because it suggests that everything works out great for her and she's a-okay. Yeah. When instead what the movie suggests is like she needs to be more honest with herself about what she wants in life and actually spend time in introspection. One thing I did like about this movie is it's probably the best handling of the gay best friend in any 90s, even early 2000s media I've seen because... George is, like, you know, super supportive and involved in her life, but they also show him having a life of his own. Like, he has friends outside of her, he goes to events, and is involved in more than just, 
I literally thought he would be in the opening scene and then just never be seen again based on other 90s rom-coms. And even coming back in, he is not just a sounding board. He has like this Jiminy Cricket role as her conscience. Right. Yeah. He's one of the better defined characters in the whole movie, I'd say. Right. Yeah. Again, Dermot Mulroney works for Sport Magazine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was a big surprise to me. And I thought that George was fun. The Barry the Kudas scene was absolutely insane. Oh, you're talking about the big musical number that made it into the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But I did like at the end how Julianne and him, you know, dance together and she's happy, but also knows she has to do some work on her own personality. It doesn't end with her just being sad. Like, she still has happiness in her life. Yeah, Caroline Side, who writes the When Rom Met Com column for the AV Club that I've cited a bunch on the show, wrote in her piece on this that what's interesting about My Best Friend's Wedding is that in a lot of rom-coms, your lead self-actualizes by ending up in a relationship. And in this one, she can only like self-actualize if she does not, which is part of what makes the original ending so problematic. The other thing I thought watching this is, did it establish a lot of these tropes or was it playing into them? Because she falls over a lot. She works in media. She has a gay best friend. And that was all in like the first 30 seconds of the movie. Well, after the opening number. (laughs) The opening number! Oh my gosh. That also... Okay. Whenever I get married, I am going to do something like that. And I'm going to demand that the bridesmaids perform with me. What? Wishing and Hoping? Yep. Featuring none of the characters from the rest of the movie? Yep. That also went for far too long. Here's the thing. Credit where credit is due. We made a lot of fun of Deliver Us from Eva for their, like, weird singing opener, but at least that did feature the characters from the movie and kind of loop back at the end. Yeah, they brought the book back at the end. In this, it was just a musical number on a soundstage with no decoration, a terrible veil. It was in a pink void. Oh my gosh, that veil. It was like a peacock head. It, like, came just to the shoulders and was super tufty. I almost fast-forwarded through that. Yeah, but Fiona, you have a track record of fast-forwarding through like overture sections of movies. That's why I didn't, and I hated every second. <laughs> Another thing I hated about this movie, everyone kisses on the lips, like yes. a lot. Yeah. Like, she like, kisses George on the lips, she kisses his dad on the lips, she kisses his friend on the lips. It was just a lot of lip kissing, and especially uh, And right especially now, these days, watching all yeah. of that. I was happy that she did not kiss the younger brother on the lips. Yeah. At least she's got a line. You watch this, you're just like, how did we not get into a global pandemic like this before? (laughs) Mark, to answer your question, some of these tropes did predate My Best Friend's Wedding. Like, of course, the falling over a lot. This is coming two years after while you were sleeping. Oh. But I'm sure it enhanced the usage of quite a number of them, particularly probably the gay best friend, given the way that Rupert Everett's performance was very positively received. Among other things, he was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. I mean, yeah, he is probably my favorite part of this movie, besides Julia Roberts just being Julia Roberts all over the place. Yeah, she was also nominated for a Golden Globe, and the movie was nominated for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy. This was the year that that category was dominated by As Good As It Gets, before Titanic then ran the Oscars. Yeah. What's as good as it gets? Is that Nancy Myers? No, it's James L. Brooks. Okay. It's worth noting, like, this is the Titanic year, the year that this new box office record is set that would last for 12 years. But like we said earlier, My Best Friend's Wedding was a huge hit. It had a $38 million budget. It made almost $300 million worldwide and was the eighth highest grossing movie of the year. And it's also seen as this big sort of comeback 
for Julia Roberts, who hadn't acted at all between 1991 and 93, to the point that, like, in 1993, people ran a cover story asking, what happened to Julia Roberts? Where is she? And then she, in, like, 94, 95, she has this slump of movies that are pretty poorly received, stuff like Preda Porter, I Love Trouble, Mary Riley. And so then when Best Friend's Wedding comes out and is a huge hit, people are like, Julia Roberts is back! And then it's Notting Hill, Aaron Brockovich, Ocean's Eleven over the next four years. Remember in Ocean's 12 how Julia Roberts plays her character from Ocean's Eleven and also Julia Roberts? Yeah, it's fantastic. I think about it like, a lot. The premise of Ocean's 12 is that there is a world-famous movie star who looks like Julia Roberts. Isn't she just, like, isn't she called Julia Roberts in the movie? Possibly. It's been a long time since I watched it. And, like, Bruce Willis plays Bruce Willis? Um, yes, she is credited as playing Hollywood celebrity Julia Roberts. <laughs> that is incredible crediting, too. That they called her Hollywood celebrity, in case you didn't know who <laughs> Julia Roberts was. As farmer Julia Roberts. I mean, it's a name that I'm sure more than one person in this world does have. Here's what That's I want to know, though. This movie has a lead character named Julianne. What are the chances that this character was not basically just named Julia Roberts? Do we get a last name for her? I don't know that we Roberts? do. I'm just saying that, like, it's the kind of thing that raises some eyebrows. And it is worth noting that in the Mexican version, they just call the character Julia. Well, that makes sense. I don't know if Julianne is as much of a name. Her last name is Potter. Uh, if you do want to talk about a uh, missing star, Cameron Diaz is in this movie. Right, who has all but retired from acting at this point. Yeah. But in My Best Friend's Wedding, it's one of her early appearances. Like, she had been in The Mask in 1994. That was her first appearance. And then she got into this in part because Julia Roberts suggested her for the role. And it's after this pretty substantial role in My Best Friend's Wedding that she then does being John Malkovich and then Charlie's Angels and of course Shrek. Ah uh, yes. Her biggest role. <laughs> I mean literally. Yeah. Shrek made her so much money. It probably still makes her more money than any other movie she was in. Oh, I'm sure. Probably. Worth noting Rupert Everett who plays George is also a Shrek character because he played Prince Charming. Oh. Oh, he did, Shrek didn't too. he? Yes. And I believe he's in Shrek the 3rd as well. I think that's right. And yeah. uh, did Paul Giamatti make an appearance in this? He yes, did, he's indeed. The bellhop. bellhop, yeah. I like shrieked when he showed up. I was just like, <laughs> I was what delighted. I was excited. Yeah, it was like seeing an old friend. Yeah, I I poured out some wine for myself. <laughs> uh, I love him. He's great. I was thinking of him because I watched 1776 over the Fourth of July. So I was like, ah, oh, yes, John Adams. Oh, I was like, he's not in 1776. So as most of this movie is romance. Should we just dive into the points? Yeah, let's do it. We got a lot to dig into with this bad boy. <laughs> that is true. So, every week we break down the romance into five points, or six when Fiona's here. We'll see if she's done it again. So, Fiona, as our guest, would you please lead us through the film My Best Friend's Wedding? Sure, and let's kick it off with a point zero. What? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was really good for the last movie where I had to watch Dr. Doolittle throw a seal over a cliff and I did not have a point zero on that. So That's because there was nothing yeah, in that movie. But you didn't have a point about the seal. Like somehow you had five points, but you missed the most important romantic moment. Anyways, so now I feel like it is due to me that I'm allowed to have a point zero here. Fiona, you don't have a right to break the rules. I can do this is the crisis we are engaging in as a society right now it is white people who think that they have a right to do whatever the heck they want what are you saying that i have a point zero because i'm white i'm all i'm saying is both of those things are true 
All right. I genuinely don't really know what the point zero is because I feel like the movie follows a pretty easy structure. Okay. Point zero is just the fact that years ago in the past, a marriage pact was made and that Michael- This could be part of point one. No, no, no. It had to be a point zero. (laughs) Because this is why she's interested in his phone call. (laughs) We haven't gotten to that yet. I was thinking about you and I was remembering this- um unbelievably insane night that we spent in Tucson, like, I don't know, a thousand years ago. And you probably won't remember this, but... Are you kidding? I think about that night all the time. At least in, like, Maid of Honor, which is a very similar movie to this one, we have, like, a prologue scene. Well, yeah, that's true. The movie doesn't make it seem like a backstory, but it is a backstory that I felt needed to be point zero. So point zero is the marriage pact. And years ago, Michael and Jules made a pact that if they were 28 and not married, they would get married. That's the end of point zero. They They dated for a month. One perfect month. One perfect month, but then it ended. But they still wanted to be best friends. Right. Because Julia doesn't believe in love. Yeah. Right. But now they're 28. They're basically 30. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a stretch. I'm sorry. You didn't like that? No, I did not. So they're staring down this marriage pact. Is that point zero? Are we done? That's point zero. It was quick. It just needed it was to unnecessary. be mentioned first. Okay, so point one is the surprise. I gave all of my points names, and this one is named the surprise. I've never felt this way about anybody. And she's all wrong for me. <laughs> well, there's a good start. Well, no, I, I mean, she's a junior at the University of Chicago. She's 20. Her name's Kim, Jules. You're going to love her. She's beautiful. And her dad is this billionaire, and he owns the White Sox and some cable empire. And you know, I've always been kind of uncomfortable around rich people. Sure. But they're, they're not like that. They're such wonderful people, really. Salt of the earth. So you've, you've met her parents? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jules, we're getting married this Sunday. So this is when uh, Jules is out for dinner with George and she gets a message from Michael and it sounds pretty urgent. And he says, I need to talk to you. Please call me back. So she calls him back and the conversation, like the way it's going, it could be leading up to some sort of love profession. And she thinks that's what it is. Right. She's convinced like, oh, you know, we're right at 28. It's time for us to get married. And she's clearly into this idea. Right. And her birthday is like, a couple weeks away or something. So she interrupts Michael and she says, hey, remember that pact? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, but that's not why I'm calling. Well, he says, I think about that all the time. You're right. You're right. But the reason he's calling is because he has met someone and he has met someone that he has never felt this way about before. She is young. She's only 20 years old. She's very, very rich. I don't she's think we learn her junior in college. Yeah, she's 20, she's a junior at UChicago, and she is the heir to the White Sox. Right, and I think she's studying architecture. Yeah. And it's not that her dad just owns the White Sox. He's incredibly rich and, in addition, owns the White Sox. Right. Right. Which I believe is how they met through sports circles, because he writes for Sport Magazine. Yeah. Uh, Most likely. But it's worth keeping in mind, whenever we're talking about 28-year-old Dermot Mulroney, and we're talking about his fiance Cameron Diaz, we're talking about the college student that he is hooking up with correct the big surprise in all of this is that the wedding is in four days and he wants jules to fly from new york to chicago to be there and support him in this we are told that he's been trying to call her for at least a month so it's not like he called her up four days beforehand and said come to my wedding true it's that she has not been answering his phone calls for some reason they never really explained that either i didn't really get it yeah it's weird that she's ignoring his calls for that long but it does kind of suggest that 
as much as they talk about this best friend status for one another, they are less close than they imagine themselves to be. Yeah, I think they've been drifting apart. They're probably both very busy. She's got a new best friend in George, and he's got a girlfriend. And she's on a book tour. Yeah. And he is dating somebody who is too young to drink alcohol. Yeah, correct. So that's really all I have for point one. Uh, point two, I have titled Getting to Know You and Renow You. I've got moves you've never seen. <laughs> an imposter what did you do with my best friend so this is what you don't like my names you have clearly written something you think is silly and you get offended when i laugh at it (laughs) no i appreciate the laugh so now uh jules she says okay i'm gonna go to the wedding so she flies to chicago and she is met at the airport with michael and kim but also it's worth noting we know from her in the car on the way to leave New York, that her plan is to break up this wedding. Correct. She has set herself a goal of in the next four days, she will stop this wedding from happening and get Michael for herself. Right. So there is a plot here. She's not going to the wedding to support him. Because she is... Terrible. She's selfish. A bad, She's a bad person. person. Yes. Yeah. Um, Mark, I also wanted to note, I thought of three idiots when she arrived because she and Michael rush up to each other and they kind of almost kiss, but don't, and it wouldn't have been that weird if they kissed because everyone kisses on the lips in this movie, but they don't because their noses bump into each other, just like we heard about in Three Idiots. It is true. I honestly, I would not be surprised if she like open mouth kissed him and then turned to Kim and was like, nice to meet you and open mouth kissed her too. No, no, no. This movie has so much friendly mouth kissing. Yeah. Should we bring that back? No. Uh, Not right now, William. (laughs) Yeah, please no. I don't need to get coronavirus. Maybe post vaccine, we can bring back open mouth kissing our friends. Just because like we're going to revel in it. Yuck. Look how safe we are. Yuck. (laughs) <laughs> Fiona's not a fan of this plan. No! Do you not like kissing, Fiona? I do not want to go around kissing every person that I encounter. All right, prude. <laughs> Just because there's no more pandemic doesn't mean there's not a hygiene problem with that. We can buy you, like, the inverse of those terrible St. Patrick's Day shirts that just says, Don't kiss me! But yes, I am Irish. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure, I'll wear that. <laughs> I can see Fiona actually wearing that shirt. <laughs> like, if you gave that to her, she would wear it. Yeah, I might, I might. All right, so she's meeting up with Michael. Right. So at the airport, Kim asks Jules to be the maid of honor and also become her new best friend in the next four days. Uh, I guess there was the woman who was supposed to be her maid of honor broke a bone. I forget what bone it was, but there was an accident. She can't be the maid of honor anymore. And now it's Jules. So it seems that Kim has one friend and two cousins, and that is it for her close friendships well you got to imagine if she's been hanging out with a 28 year old how much do their friends overlap i don't know does she not have any college friends like at all i don't get it she's at university of chicago studying architecture there has to be at least one other person in the program you would think so then we see kind of the first couple of days when Jules is there and she's getting to know Kim and she's kind of reconnecting with Michael a little bit. There's a lot of sexual attention there. There's one scene when Michael walks in on Julianne when she's in the middle of changing out of her maid of honor dress and she's uncomfortable because she's in her underwear and he says, I've seen more of you naked and you look really good, which is an awkward thing to say days before your wedding. It's pretty weird. Yeah. That said, it is not scheming to destroy a man's wedding and life. True. 
That is true. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Jules also finds out from Kim that they're not really going to be going on a honeymoon. They're just going to travel around following the White Sox, depending on their schedule. And Jules is like, really? That's what you want to do? Why would you do this? And Kim says she's being a good, supportive wife. Well, and she also says, like, I can travel anytime in my life. Like, I want to be with Michael. Like, that's the exciting thing. Like, she doesn't frame it just as like, well, I'm just going along with his job. Like, she is very matter-of-factly saying, like, I can live with this. This is what I want to do. If this is what it takes to be with Michael, I want to be with Michael. Yeah. But at the same time, she's dropping out of college to follow an underpaid sports writer for Sport Magazine. Look, should the wedding happen? No. (laughs) However, I think Kim is a lot more mature about the way she talks about this stuff than Julianne ever is. Yes, that is true. Kim is one of those people, and it makes sense in this movie because they end up together, but she is one of those obstacles that has no flaws. Which is the point in this movie. Right. Right. Whereas it's weird in something like Sweet Home Alabama, which she should just clearly stay with Patrick Dempsey. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously. Or in Maid of Honor, when she should have stayed with the Scottish Lord. She'd have a castle. Someone gave up a a castle? Fiona, I cannot tell you to watch Maid of Honor, but in Maid of Honor, Michelle Monaghan leaves a Scottish nobleman with a castle to be with Patrick Dempsey, who is just wandering through life, sitting on the money that he made by patenting the cardboard sleeve that goes on coffee cups. Also, this Scottish (sighs) Lord is shown to have a very large penis and is good at sex and has no flaws but well no 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 remember the one time that he didn't want to share dessert oh well that, that is that's true. a deal breaker <laughs> that's the bad thing about him yeah that was wow that was it okay so then we also have a scene in an elevator between jules and kim and this is when they're kind of mocking michael and his snoring and it seems like they're bonding except kim is kind of talking about all the things that Michael enjoys and does that she can't stand, but she does really like how he kisses. And then Kim pushes the emergency button on the elevator so that the two of them are stuck by themselves. A lunatic move. Yeah. And she basically says the only hesitation she has about the wedding is Jules. And she says that Michael has Jules on a pedestal and Kim in his arms. Yeah, Kim should be worried about Jules. Yeah, apparently that's all he talks about. And when she waltzes onto the scene, they just kind of, honestly, they make Kim feel like a third wheel a lot of the time. Well, yeah, because then following up on this, Kim has told Julianne that she does not like karaoke. So then Julianne schemes to embarrass her by taking her to a karaoke bar. Yeah, but that's later. Like she sets up circumstances designed to make Kimberly look foolish. Right, right. That comes in the next point. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that happens here is when she goes to the White Sox game where all the guys are, and that's when she's kind of flirting with Michael's brother, and he, you can tell he's uncomfortable with it. And he says, he says to her, what did you do with my best friend? And she says, I'm still your best friend. You just haven't seen me in a while. She's trying to present herself as like the cool girl that you want to be with. Right. Because he talks about how he really likes that Kim will let him hug her in public. And Jules had never let him do that. She doesn't care for any PDA at all. And she says, oh, well, I'm not the same person I used to be. I really don't understand their friendship at all. Like she shows up and they immediately make Kim a third wheel. But also hasn't picked up a single phone call from him for a month. Yeah, it's bizarre. And it is partially the problem that we know so little about Michael. Like, we have a much better sense of who Julianne and George and Kimberly are, whereas Michael is this kind of bland individual that the movie acts around. He's not even like a manic pixie dream girl because he's not even given, like, good qualities with no flaw. He is just an empty space. 
that writes for Sport Magazine. Right, he's so thinly sketched that they didn't even give him a real job. Uh, so that's all I have for point two. Are we good to go to point three? Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about this karaoke bar. Okay, so point three is called Sabotage and Lies. And this is when it shifts from Jules just trying to, like, insert herself back into Michael's life. This is when she, like you said, they go to karaoke and she knows that Kim is not comfortable with that. And she basically coerces her into singing. And Kim is a terrible singer. I I told him, puppy. I mean, if we're engaged, we really shouldn't be ashamed of it. (laughs) He's racing back to New York. He just came in for a few hours to, uh, to, uh, fuck me. (sighs) Takes a few hours. (laughs) And Julianne's a real jerk about this, where she keeps insisting on trying to get Kimberly to do it to embarrass her. Like, her goal is to humiliate Kimberly publicly. Right. And much to her surprise, well, at the start of the song, everyone's kind of like, oh, yeah, this girl really can't sing. But then they all just decide to support her. And they're clapping along. And Jules She is sticks shocked. with it and is enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. People at karaoke bars want to support you. Right. They're not there to judge bad singers. They're just there like, if you seem like you're having fun, you are good at karaoke. And in fact, if you just focus on sounding really pretty but aren't fun, then you're a menace. And you should be stopped. Yeah, that's just boring and no one wants to hear that. No one came to your concert. I thought it was also interesting seeing this karaoke scene. A, it's outrageous that any karaoke bar does not have a line. They're just like, who wants to go next? But I did think it's worth noting. This movie is less than 10 years after When Harry Met Sally, when the karaoke machine is this strange new thing that Billy Crystal encounters at the Sharper Image. That's a good point. Well, maybe When Harry Met Sally really like, kicked off the love of karaoke. I genuinely have no idea. (laughs) I just thought that was interesting. I've been watching a lot of Nora Ephron stuff lately. Ah, okay. So, then they come up with this whole plot where Kim is going to convince her dad to offer Michael a job so that he does not have to travel around anymore and write for Sport Magazine. This is a bad plan designed to trick Michael into no longer working the job he likes working. Right. And then hopefully he'll resent Kim for this and then call off the wedding. Which almost works. Yeah, it weirdly. does. It almost works because Julianne forges an email. No, not yet. No, from not it almost yet. works the first time. She yeah. like suggests it and he... He like starts to stand up from the table and then Kim starts crying. Oh, that's and true. Apologizes. I forgot about that. It makes her feel terrible for saying like, oh, you get a better job and I could finish college. Like, wouldn't this be good for both of us? And he's like, how dare you want me to make more money and let you finish college? That's so awful of you. It really almost works, and then it doesn't at the last second. Maybe this wouldn't be a problem for him if he were not dating a college student. You know, there's a lot, there are a whole bunch of issues with everything happening here. So then George shows up. Is this the best part of the movie? Maybe. Oh, absolutely. Instead of following George's encouragement and just telling Michael how she feels, Jules tells Michael that she and George are engaged. And just to piss her off, George goes in whole hog on this. Absolutely. He is so fun when he's like slapping people on the back. It's like George doing his straight performance, which is very fun. Well, and at one point, Michael says, oh, this is really confusing. I always thought George was gay. And Jules says, yeah, he likes to pretend to be gay because it attracts women. So I will say, I, as I've said before, was not a fan at all of Julianne. I think her behavior is beyond reprehensible and the movie kind of cheers for it for a while. Yeah. George is very fun. Like Mark said, I think he is probably the best example of the gay best friend. Around this time that George was pretending to be her fiance, I started imagining the alternate version of this movie where George is like her straight now best friend versus her old straight male best friend from college. And George is 
in love with her, and so he's trying to sabotage her sabotage, and we get all this, like, back-and-forth alliance-y kind of stuff, which I thought would be good because it would more center a person who's saying this behavior is wrong I by giving him objectives. was genuinely worried that he actually would say, like, I was pretending to be gay, and I love you, and this is my shot. That would be so horrible. Yeah. I was really worried about that, not gonna lie. Especially after watching Home of Phobia, or also known as Freshman Year. Freshman Orientation. The Freshman Orientation, in which I forgot that about that plot. movie. Yeah, it's a kid who pretends to be gay to try to become someone's gay best friend. What? From 2004. It's a very bad movie. We watched it in college. Doesn't John Goodman play like a drag bar owner? Yes, he does. And he should not be in that movie. It's a weird bad movie. So anyway, George is now pretending to be her fiance. It's pretty great. You can tell that Michael's very confused and a little bit jealous. At the same time, Kim seems to be thrilled that her competition is out of the way. Right. That's clearly why she's so excited about it. Yeah. Which is reasonable. Right. Because she is right to be suspicious because Julianne is only here to destroy her life. Yes. Yeah, this is the first movie I've seen where the new woman is rightly suspicious of the old friend. Right. In most movies, Kimberly would just be an unvarnished villain. Right. Right. So then... This is Barry the Kudas, right? Yeah, they go... uh, Everyone loves George so much that they invite him to lunch with them. They go to Barry the Kudas, and they have a full-on musical number at the table. And because George was also, while pretending to be straight, not doing a great job of it, because he constantly brings up, like, Dionne Warwick and other (laughs) starlets of the 70s and 80s, and then sings Say a Little Prayer for You at the table, which somehow everyone in the restaurant gets on board with. Yeah, everyone is on board. And that's the thing where, like, it's weird that there's one giant musical number in the movie. It would be much weirder if there were a second one featuring no named characters. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, if there were three musical numbers and only one of which had named characters, that would be very strange. Let alone just one at the beginning. Why didn't they just get the, like... I guess they didn't want Cameron Diaz because I don't think she actually can sing that well. But they can dub it. Like, yeah. (laughs) It doesn't have to be her. It just should be her body. Yeah, it makes no sense. All right. So around this time, is this when they go on the... They go on the boat. Yes. And I and she does admit to Michael that George is no longer her fiance. Well, she claims that George is like a dude who's obsessed with her and won't leave her alone. And so she occasionally allows him to claim that they are together. Yeah. Just to appease him, which is a horrifying scenario to present. Yes. And she also says that she has always measured every man against Michael. And then Michael also admits to being jealous when George showed up. Um, And they talk about how this moment could be their last alone time ever. And they dance on the boat. They almost kiss. Yeah, there's this moment under the bridge where they have the opportunity to say that they love each other. And they kind of stare at each other and don't. And that's probably the moment at which Julianne could have said that and saved face. Because it would be in the context of that conversation, still with, like, two days before the wedding. Yeah. And they also talk about how he and Kimmy do not have a song that's their song, and he's worried that that's a bad a bad sign of their relationship, you know, because- It's like, good God, man. He and Jules have a song, and so that's- they dance while he sings on the boat in the middle of a crowd. It's the way you look tonight. It's not like it's like, oh, it's our song that no one else would think to think of romantically. Yeah, it's a pretty generic song there. Yeah. If I was on that architecture cruise and saw two strangers start dancing and singing, I have, I would just 
be so confused. I can't even imagine how I would react, especially if it was that, like, not flash mobby. And I, I have been on that architecture tour, and I have never seen anybody dance while That's on true. the boat. I have too. Yeah. It's one of the best, like, overblown tourist attractions. Oh, absolutely. It's actually super cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's some good history on that. I'm glad we have all done this boat tour. <laughs> Everyone who's been to Chicago has done it. It's what you do in Chicago. All right. So she had this opportune moment and missed it. So this then is when she starts, I don't know, is it a crime what she does with the email? Uh, I don't know if it's a crime, but boy, is it shitty. It's at best borderline legal. Because here's what she does. She logs onto someone else's computer, logs into their email, and composes a fraudulent email. I am really not she sure. She doesn't hit send on it. I don't know how that email got directed to anybody because she did not type an email address. She typed the man's wrote- name and title, and apparently <laughs> it was delivered. And that's not how email works. I mean, the only way that it would work is because the boss tells the assistant, like, send all the emails in my drafts folder. So the assistant could see that and be like, all right, I can look up how to contact this guy. I guess. It's plausible. But remember that... Google was not the thing it is now in 1997. Right, but she could, like, call the magazine. I guess. I do like that it says new letter instead of new email (laughs) because it was still electronic mail at the time. It was not its own thing. I mean, this is the year before You've Got Mail, a movie about how novel email is. Yeah. But the gist of the email is that Kim's dad is writing to Michael's boss saying, oh, my daughter and I really would like him to come work for me, but he won't give up his job and you need to help us convince him to leave. So then his boss doing the right thing forwards the email to him and is like, hey, hate to throw this at you right before your wedding, but you should see that this is what your fiance's family is doing. Like the boss does the right thing. Oh, absolutely. So then uh, Michael calls Kim and she of course denies it because she has no idea what he's talking about. She's like, oh my gosh, Wow, who would have thought that there would be a plot to get you to stop doing your great job at Sport Magazine? Right. Uh, She calls Michael crazy and paranoid. She says it's too late to call off the brunch. But he says, yeah, I am crazy. I can't believe I I fell in love with someone that I don't even know. And the wedding is off. I'm assuming they weren't both drunk at the time because, again, Cameron Diaz's character is too young to drink. Yeah. I just find that useful in framing just quite how young she is. The movie also just forgets that part too, I think. I don't know why they included that she's 20, because it really doesn't come up a lot. It's just because like her dropping out of college is supposed to be part of the mechanics of them negotiating their lives around each other. I guess. All right, so this brings us to point four, right? Yes, which is called Kiss and Tell the Truth. I love you. I've loved you for nine years. I've just been too arrogant and scared to realize it. And, well, now I'm just scared. So I I, I realize this comes at a very inopportune time, but I really have this gigantic favor to ask of you. Choose me. Oh, also when she's writing the email, she has been entrusted with the wedding ring that he is going to give Cameron Diaz. And around the time she's writing the email, she puts the ring on her own finger and then can't get it off. Yeah, and then he, like, puts her finger in his mouth to heat it up and take it off. And, like, yeah, like, chemically, sure, that works, but I hated every second of that. You know what else would work? Soap. Yeah. You could use soapy water to get the ring off her finger. He sticks the whole thing in his mouth. It's not breathing, Fiona. He He probably licked her. He kisses her finger. Yeah. 
He's like using his tongue to wiggle that ring off her finger. I hated it so much. It's like he met her finger in a post-coronavirus world. (laughs) No, no! (laughs) This is the scene where the two of them get the most sexual. Like, he's doing it as like a sex thing, not just as the most efficient way of getting the ring off. Right, because around this time, he has decided, like, I cannot marry Cameron Diaz. And she's like, maybe we should get together. And he wants to be alone, but he does say they should go on a trip together. So, point four. The next morning, Jules gets a message from Michael saying that he went to the brunch, which she cannot believe because the wedding is off, and yet here he is going off to one of the wedding events. So she rushes over to Kim's parents' house. She finds Michael. She asks if he has changed his mind and wants to go through with the wedding now. And he says, no, it's over. I just haven't told anybody yet. But he says he'll tell them. So he asks Jules to go check on Kimmy. And Jules tells Kimmy that, oh, Michael probably made the whole thing up as a way to get out of the wedding. You know, he was too afraid. He couldn't go through with it. So he made up this conflict about the job and use that as a way out. And then she goes this whole bizarre metaphor about how Cameron Diaz is creme brulee and Michael doesn't want creme brulee, he wants jello. And Kim's like, I can be jello. And she says, No, you and cannot. I was like, this is a great example of the problem with the movie for me, where I find the jokes very funny. Like the delivery of the jello conversation is quite funny. I just cannot condone anything that's happening. Yeah. So Jules, then she goes back to Michael and she tell, or sorry, she tells Michael that Kim admitted to doing all of this. And he asks if Kim is still in love with him. And Jules says, yep, Kim does still love you. She would still want to go through with this. And Michael says, okay, yep, I'm going to get married. And this is when Jules finally tells Michael that she loves him. And she asks him to choose her instead, and she kisses him. In the gazebo, and she's all like, I am 28, going on 29, break up with the college girl. That's exactly what happened. But side note, did you guys see the massive amount of balloons in the background of this scene? That's how you show someone's rich, Fiona. They it have was balloons. enough to lift a house. Anyways. They should make a movie about that. They really should. But Kim sees the kiss, and she starts running, and then Michael runs after Kim, and Jules runs after Michael, and the run turns into a car race with Jules driving a baker's truck. There is a full-on car chase, like Grand Theft Auto sequence in this movie. And then she just parks this stolen truck in the middle of the road. Yeah, and then she finds Michael at the train station, and they talk, and... He was like, oh, I came here because this is where I proposed, and I thought maybe this is where Kim was. And Jules, between George telling, pointing out that no one is chasing after her, and also this conversation with Michael, she kind of realizes that she needs to stop, and the wedding needs to happen. I will say, proposal in a train station? Good move. I'm a fan. No story has ever been made worse by a train. Trains are fun. Yeah, they rule. So the last point, then, is doing the right thing. Now, I love this man, and there is no way that I'm going to give him up to some two-faced, big-haired food critic. All right, I kissed him. I tried to steal him. I lost. And so Jules goes, she finds Kim in the bathroom at the White Sox Stadium. Uh, they have a, a little bit of a fight there with 
everyone else in the bathroom standing around them watching it all and commenting on what's happening. Yeah, there was apparently a game going on. Yeah. And Julianne got into the stadium bathroom somehow. Well, her dad's the owner. She can do whatever she wants. Well, no, Kimberly I'm fine with. I'm talking about Julianne. Yeah, 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 you're right. So this is when Jules finally admits that she lost and that Michael loves Kim and she tells Kim she will drive her to the church. And the wedding goes through without any other hitches. Here's a great idea. Don't have your ex be in your wedding. Yeah. Because Julianne is the maid of honor because the original maid of honor dropped out or something. Doesn't she have two sisters who are also in the wedding? I think they're cousins. I I, I think they are cousins. Yeah. Who cares? It should be one of them. Because then you've got this woman who just tried to break up the wedding standing right next to it happening. She gives a toast at the reception in which her gift is loaning them the use of The Way You Look Tonight, the least original hour song ever. She also talks about her nightmare where some psychopath tried to break up the wedding. Yeah, nobody wants to hear about that. It was insane. Her speech... I had no idea what was going on. And then Michael and Kim leave and George calls Jules and we find out that he's there all along and they dance the night away. And then for some reason, the kitchen staff sings a four minute gospel number. (laughs) No, that is not in the movie. (laughs) The fact that people just like leave their own wedding reception halfway through to start honeymoons baffles me. Like, I don't think, I haven't seen it happen as much, but they just leave and the party continues without them. Yeah, Clearly for like several hours. All right, guys. After watching this movie unfold, do you find the romance in it believable? Which couple? Any of it. In total. Again, it's hard to judge because Michael is a nothing of a person. Yeah. Are there couples out there kind of like Michael and Kim? Yeah. Is there someone like Jules out there crazy enough to do all of this? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is that the Kim-Michael relationship is based on clearly almost zero communication. Yeah, that's Because true. the way that Julianne is able to so easily disrupt everything that's going on means that they are not effective at speaking with one another about anything. Because apparently they have all of these issues that they have not brought to the foreground and she is able to unveil with no effort. I think I want to go with like a two or a three. Yeah, I was leaning towards like a three because, you know, they do set up that Julianne and Michael have this history together and there is that kernel and then Michael's an awful person, but chooses to date a 20-year-old anyway, which I can see happening. But yeah, maybe like a three. Yeah, I could do a three on this. Yeah. Um, Heads up, adults, don't date college students. Seriously. Do you guys think that Julianne, Michael, or Kimmy is dateable? I mean, what I just said notwithstanding, I think Kimmy is the most dateable of the three. Agreed. She's bizarrely the most mature of them all, if a little too willing to sacrifice her own wants. Right. We haven't really seen anything too offensive from Michael, but I just don't Um, know. I'm sorry. Did you see what he did to that finger? Yeah. Okay. Wait, I forgot about that. Whereas like Kimmy, I think is pretty good at assessing other people. She's just not quite there with herself. Yeah. If you guys did have to choose one person in this movie to date, who would you pick? George. George. I was going to say Paul Giamatti, but it's just George. Like, George (laughs) is the best character. He's a ton of fun. His life seems really fun. Yeah, he goes to fun things. He's, like, holding dinner parties, going to book readings. Yeah, and he's a really supportive friend. Yeah, and he sings. It's fun. And it's worth noting, he is not just supportive. He challenges her. Yeah, he challenges his friends. He'll say, this thing you are doing is wrong. Yeah. Right. 
But then he'll be there to help pick you up and get your life back together. Do you guys think Michael and Kimmy will stay together? I don't have high hopes. I think they're terrible about communicating what they want. I think someday Kimmy will not be 20 and grow a backbone and realize how shitty Michael is. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I hope they do not stay together. A lot of the movies we cover on this show have been adapted for the stage. Do you guys think this movie should be made into a musical? I think that could be fun to see. I half expected you to say it already had, Will. Do you think it would make a good musical, Mark? I don't really think so. I mean, I guess it's more I don't really want to see the musical, but I think it could be made into a decent musical. I just think that, like, we need to somehow ground much earlier the sense that she is wrong. Like, I, as soon as she starts talking about breaking up the wedding, I'm like, this is bad. But it's not clear that the movie feels that way until too late. Yeah. That said, the musical... For My Best Friend's Wedding has already been written. It was supposed to premiere on the West End this fall, but has been delayed to fall 2021. So it's coming. Oh yeah, it's coming next year. Of course. A lot of these these musical adaptations of movies tend to debut in the UK. It's cheaper, I think. Yeah. But it's it's like the second biggest theater hub. So it's a really good staging ground, I think. Because when you have the name My Best Friend's Wedding... You spent too much to try and bring it to, like, some regional theater. But New York is too expensive. So I get it. That makes sense. But I think that's about it for My Best Friend's Wedding. Now, we talked a lot in this episode about Maid of Honor, which is similarly a movie about someone who decides to break up a wedding. And the star of that movie is Michelle Monaghan, who we will be seeing again next week when we talk about the vital romance of Mission Impossible 3. That was quite a segue there. It worked, though. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. You can always email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from my best friend's wedding? Uh, don't date college students. Don't try and break up your friend's wedding because you will just look like the bad guy. Don't hack into other people's emails. That is important dating advice. (laughs) Those were all pretty good pieces of advice. So until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye.